I wonder, have you ever been so vexed by a problem, so um, ripped apart by a decision, having to know what is the right call? What am I going to do? What, what's, what am I supposed to do? What's going to work out for me? Have you ever been uh, to a point where you were so agonized and torn apart by some decision that you just thought to yourself, you know what would make this easy? You know what would really help me? Lord, could you just give me a sign? You ever asked for that? Lord, if you could just give me a sign. I mean, should I do this business deal or not? It's a huge risk. It may mean a huge opportunity. It may mean utter failure. Oh, I don't know. Lord, I'm staying awake and I could just give me a sign. Maybe you've asked, should I take this job or should I stay put? Should I step out and start that company? I mean, I just need a sign. Maybe when you were younger, oh, Lord, where do I go to school? What am I going to major in? How about this one? Oh, Lord. If she's the one, just give me a sign. And while you're at it, could you give her a sign that I'm the one? Is she somehow missing it? You know, and uh, I, I laugh. Uh, when I was uh, uh, praying about uh, coming here, the First Baptist Coleman is praying about calling a preacher from New York City. <laughs> And I'm praying about coming on one of the visits here. I remember, uh, Lord, is this your will? I mean, New York is such a transient place. I remember breathing this prayer and Jackie and I thinking about roots. You know, New York, you, you live in two-year increments as your lease goes. And I thought, Lord, it'd be nice to go somewhere where I could, just, I could just spend my days there and be buried there and put down roots. I'm praying this prayer driving up Main Avenue. And there at City Cemetery, a huge monument says, Richter Family. It's like... <laughs> Looks like they've got a spot reserved. <laughs> I tell that story as an illustration. Is, is it wrong for Christians to ask for a sign? I laugh at that because, no, I, I don't believe that was a sign. If you ask me, is it wrong for a born-again Christian, a blood-bought child of God, is it wrong for them to ask God for a sign? I would say um, this. It, it, it's probably harmless. God knows your heart. He loves you. But it's not God's usual method of dealing with us. I'll put it that way. So do not be offended and do not be surprised if God doesn't grant your, your request for a sign. Okay? Don't be offended. Uh, that, that's not what he normally does. And, and the reason is not that he's trying to be difficult or that he doesn't love you. But if you're a Christian, he's given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you wisdom, a brain, and he expects you to use it. <laughs> he's given you his word. And he's put you in a faith community called a local church. And all these things can be helpful in those vexing decisions. Uh, but most of all, I, I, I think it's because, look, he, he's also given you moral responsibility. This is what it means to be human. You are going to have to make tough decisions where you do not know the outcome. I scratch my head sometimes. I hear these preachers and, you know, they'll be driving down the road. And the Lord told me to turn left. And I'm so glad he did because I turned left. And there I met a family who was like, we were waiting for a preacher. Can you tell us how to be saved? And I'm like, that has never once happened to me. And I'm left going, do you have some special hotline that the rest of us don't have? I don't get those signs. Instead, what I realized many times, I'm not belittling that. If God does that, by all means. But wouldn't that be something? If God wrote a sign in the sky, you know, you should go here. You should take this job. Then ultimately what we could do is we could outsource all the responsibility for our life to God. And then when things go wrong, I guess we could sue him. He made the decision. At that point, we would have to make no responsible decisions. And then what would it mean to even be human? So God has allowed us to make these 
decisions. And what he promises is not, I'll give you a sign and preempt your own decision making. What he promises is, wherever you go, I will be with you. So check your motives, check God's word, check your heart. And that's much better than a sign. But let's think about, let's press the issue for just a second and think about those who are not yet believers. Would that be helpful? In fact, maybe you're here today exploring the claims of Jesus. Maybe you're watching this one day on a video or or maybe you know people, maybe you're saved, maybe you're born again, but you're sharing your testimony with people who don't know Christ and you're hearing them say things like, well, I would believe in God if I had a sign. If God would send me a sign, then I would put my faith in in God. I need a sign. I I need evidence, and then I'll believe in Jesus. Is that wrong? Is it wrong for someone who's not yet a believer to say, if I have enough evidence, if I can get a sign, then I'll believe in Jesus? To that, I would say, now that's a complicated question, because I would need to know what what are their motives? What do they mean when they're asking for a sign? Because they may mean a lot of different things, and I would sort of put them on a, on, a, on, a, on a range, on a spectrum of things they might mean. Over here, you, you might have, let's do at least three categories. You might have folks that are sincere seekers, and what they're saying is, I need more evidence before I put my faith and trust in Jesus. If that's what they're saying, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Good for them. In other words, if they're saying, look, you're telling me you've got a a Nazarene Jew from 2,000 years ago who claims to have your eternal destiny. What what you decide about him, you're going to stand before him in judgment and have to answer for. He claims that he is God in human flesh, and then on the third day he rose up from the grave. If if I'm going to put my whole life into his hands, I'm going to need some evidence because of the, the, the seriousness and the weightiness of that claim. I'm not just going to do that blindly. To you, I would say, good for you. You shouldn't. You should examine the evidence. If you're a sincere, a sincere seeker and you're saying, hey, I need, I need signs in the sense of I need more evidence, then search the scriptures. Consider the empty tomb. Seek and you will find. Nothing wrong with that. But, but I would say, and maybe this is that second category, I would say be careful The Bible says, the Bible talks about a sin nature, so be careful, you've got some blind spots. And if you say, well, I can't see him. (laughs) That's what I mean. And the blind spot is your natural propensity, you're not neutral. You need to know that. If you're not a believer, or if the person you're witnessing with, you need to remember, they're not neutral. The Bible says they have a sin nature, we have a sin nature, and and that that our, our, our propensity is actually toward unbelief. Uh, uh, the Bible would even go so far as to say you are dead in your sins and trespasses. So until the Holy Spirit regenerates you and brings you to life, you don't actually, it is not in your nature to go and seek after God. So you better be uh, careful when you say, well, I need a sign, and then I would believe. No, you need rebirth. And so there is, there, there's a sense in which I think just be aware of that. The New Testament talks a lot about that. And then way over here on the spectrum, we would put those who um, have, uh, uh, they say, well, I, you know, I need a sign and then I would believe when in fact they are hostile to the claims of Christ. They wouldn't believe even if they had a sign. You, you know the, the type I'm talking about. They're, they're not, they're, their heart is, motive is not coming from a sincere place. You know, they've already made up their mind, and so yes, it would be wrong for these folks to demand a sign. There's no sincerity, because no matter what sign they were given, they would just dismiss the evidence. And I'm talking about, you know, the, the debaters, you know, the, the, the atheist who's in the debate with the theist, and they're having this debate, and the atheist says something like, well, if God were real, he should just have lightning come and strike this stage right here in front of everyone. 
if lightning in that moment, thunder booms, lightning strikes the stage, he would say, well, that was quite a coincidence, right? And just move on. You, you know what I'm talking about. So entrenched in unbelief that it doesn't matter. The, the, the rich man syndrome, if you remember the, the parable in Luke chapter 16, do, do you remember that? We're, we're going to be in Matthew 12 today, but, but do, do you remember uh, uh, when um, the story about the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man is is uh, rejected God, and he cries out, and he, he says, go tell my family, go warn them. And he's like, look, they've, they've got the prophets. They've got everything they need. He's like, no, 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 go tell them. He says, they're not going to believe even if a dead man comes up back out of the grave. Well, it's that third group on the spectrum where we find the Pharisees in Matthew 12. They're in this group that's hostile to the claims of Christ. They've already decided in their minds they know exactly who Jesus is. They've said that he's in league with the devil. And so what they say next is pretty shocking, Let's pick it up in Matthew 12, 38. You remember the context here. They've decided that Jesus is only able to do these miracles that he's able to do because he's in league with the devil. They've seen him do all these different miracles. And in verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. You reckon Jesus is like, you gotta be kidding me. What are you talking about? I literally just healed a guy who was blind and mute, the Bible says, demon oppressed. You literally just saw me do that. You saw me just a few verses before that, heal a man with the, the issue with the withered hand. I mean, I'm, I'm doing all these miracles. I'm doing all these signs. And now, now you say, we, yes, we wish to see a sign. Now that is ridiculous. Church, can I ask you, how could somebody so clearly see the work of God over and over in their life, God could work over and over in their life, and yet we still doubt and demand to see more evidence? Can you imagine any human seeing God work over and over in their life and still not trusting that he's going to come through? You're telling me you've never done that? Are we not a little bit like those Pharisees in Matthew 12, 38? We've seen God work over and over, and we think, man, I wish he would do something to really make, make me know he can be trusted. <laughs> he's done so much for us. And when God has done so much for us and we still demand a sign, that's evil, isn't it? And that's what Jesus says. Verse 39, he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it. He's calling them out. He's saying, you're not sincere. You're in this group over here that has already made up their mind. You're not really wanting a sign. And so, no, I don't do on-demand parlor tricks. I'm sorry, I, I, I'm not a street magician or something. I'm, I'm, I'm the son of God. I'm doing these miracles. And this just reveals your heart. This reveals a lot more about you than it does about Jesus, doesn't it? He's saying to the Pharisees, he calls it evil and adulterous. Evil, think uh, uh, wicked, think Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh? God does all these incredible signs and it just hardens his heart against what is so obvious adulterous, think the Israelites. Right after God gets them across the Red Sea, there at Sinai, Moses is getting the Ten Commandments on the mountain and giving the instructions on the tabernacle. The Ten Commandments are like wedding vows. The tabernacle is how we're gonna live together, Israel. It's gonna be great. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. And while God is doing all this good stuff, Israel is uh, forming a golden calf to bow down to in worship. And God says, you're cheating on me. It's adulterous. After God did all that and pulls him close. Jesus says, so no, you, you don't need a sign because you have no intention of ever loving me. Your heart is chasing after other loves. So does Jesus leave them completely signless? No. 
He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it, except, except one. You do get one sign, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Here we go. This will be your outline for today. One sign given, one verdict awaits, one experience observed. One sign given, the sign of the prophet Jonah, one verdict awaits, one experience observed. If there's only one sign given, we'd better get this one sign right. What is this one sign? What is this, the, the sign of the prophet Jonah? It sounds cryptic, right? It sounds mysterious. Well, the good news is that most everyone in our day has heard of Jonah, and most everyone in the Pharisees' day had heard of Jonah as well. The Pharisees were people just like us, and they knew that Jonah was going to be a wonderful kid's story, a whale of a tale, right? So at little Pharisee vacation, by, vacation Torah school, they had their little, they had Jonah, right? And all the kids knew about Jonah. The Pharisees knew about Jonah. Uh, if you've uh, been a while since you've heard about Jonah or you, you don't know about Jonah, Jonah is an Old Testament prophet called by God to proclaim a message of judgment on Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, a great and wicked nation. It dominated uh, the region, including Israel. So the Ninevites, these Assyrians, would have had um, piles of Israelite skulls <laughs> of, the, of the men and women that and children that they had murdered, right? I mean, they, they were known for uh, horrific uh, war crimes, terrible people, uh, uh, w- wicked, the Bible says, a great city, but wicked, and Jonah is called to go and preach a message to him, and um, some, some, when, he, when he gets to the docks to decide where he's going to go, he sees a ship that's going the exact opposite direction. Some people said, well, that's because he was scared to preach to the Ninevites. No, he was uh, scared that if he went and preached that God would uh, forgive him, that they'd repent. And he's so hard-hearted that he takes the first ship going the other direction, running from God. Funny thing when you try to run from God. Anybody trying to run from God this morning? Can you hear him? He's getting closer. You know why? You can't run from God. And Jonah learned that lesson. A great storm comes upon the sailors in this ship, and they're wondering, what is the cause of this? And Jonah says, yeah. That'd be me. And uh, the only way, you're all going to die in this storm unless you throw me overboard and uh, then the storm will abate and you guys will be fine. They're like, we're not doing that. But things get bad enough. He's like, I'm telling you, it's the only way. Finally, against their will, they throw him overboard. Sure enough, the sea is calm. Is that the end of Jonah? Well, it should have been, except God sends a big fish, swallows Jonah, and from the guts of sea mammals, Jonah cries out, (laughs) prayer of repentance. He is saved. The fish then, how do I put this politely, disgorges the prophet (laughs) who promptly began walking toward Nineveh. There he preached, the people repented. His sermon was, as far as sermons go, pretty lousy. Uh, Do you remember what Jonah told him to do? It's a trick question because most of the time we answer that question. He told him to repent. Actually, he didn't. Uh, He didn't tell him how to be saved. He didn't offer him a shred of hope. His sermon was eight words. It's pathetic. Some of you are going, you know, an eight-word sermon sounds, wouldn't be the worst sermon ever. But it's, in in 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. In Hebrew, it's only five words. Can you imagine? Grumpily walking around, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed. 
That's it. No hope. No invitation. No, no, hey, you know, you should repent. None of that. And then I'd say, what do we do? Jonah's like, no, no, don't care. Wrath is coming. His heart's not in it at all. Well, what happens? He's just mailing it in. He doesn't even want them to be saved. What happens? You remember. The king hears this and says, he believes it. He, he believes in what this prophet is saying. He believes in the God of this prophet. He calls a fast. He doesn't even know what he's doing. He's, he's repenting, but he doesn't know how. He doesn't have any of the scriptures. He doesn't have any background. He's like, I don't know. Uh, don't eat and cover yourself in sackcloth and ashes. And, the, and they're like, well, I mean, okay, how long? I don't know. I'm making this up. And they're like, what about the cows? He's like, no, the cows fast too. And I always imagine being a Ninevite cow, like, what'd we do? You know? So the cows fast too. Why did they make their cows fast? Because they have no clue what they're doing. And you know what God does? He has mercy on them. In the last verse in Jonah, it says, he's telling Jonah, should I not have had mercy on 120,000 people and their cattle? And the cows are like, we made it too. <laughs> he has mercy on them. So, so what led to this massive repentance? This clarifies, why is all this story important? What is the sign of Jonah? Well, Jonah performed no miracles. He simply spoke. So what is the sign of Jonah? Is, Jonah, is the sign of Jonah some special miracle that Jonah did that Jesus is going to do? No, Jonah was the sign. Here you have a guy who was as good as dead, expected to be dead, and was in fact considered dead for three days. But then after three days, he appears alive wearing his fresh brand of whale guts aftershave, preaching to these Ninevites, and the fact that this man was as good as dead for three days and back alive, Jonah is the sign. The fact that he's alive and preaching after spending three days in the belly of a huge fish is enough sign you need that God is active. The sign that he was dead and alive. And Jesus says, that is exactly the sign you get. That's exactly how it's going to be with me. Here's how he puts it. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, remember the rabbis counted any part of a day as a full day. So if you get Friday night, Saturday, or in any part of Easter Sunday morning, you get three full days. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What's he doing? He's predicting his resurrection from the grave. He's saying the sign that will lead my adversaries, these Pharisees that are so hostile to me, it's not going to be, when, when I say sign of Jonah, it's not going to be some miracle like Jonah performed. No, the sign will be Jesus himself, visibly, tangibly, alive, three days after his death. His risen life will indicate that he is the Lord and Savior who gives eternal life. Went to anyone who's ever said, before I can believe in Jesus, I just need a sign. Here is your one sign, Easter Sunday morning. The resurrection of Jesus is not just a sign, it's the sign. And it is sufficient for salvation. What do you do with the resurrection? The death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God. That he, that he was crucified. He died according to the scriptures. That he was buried according to the scriptures. And on the third day, he was raised to life according to the scriptures. That's either true and you should stake your life on it, or it's false and we are to be pitied above all because we're believing a lie. But that's it. That is the sign the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There is one sign, and it's Easter. It's enough. For those who refuse this one sign, 
You have 2,000 years of Christian witness. You have the Old Testament scriptures. You have the New Testament. You have the Holy Spirit active and working. If you reject all that and you reject the evidence, if you come up with some reason, what, what happened? How is there an empty tomb? What, who moved the stone? If, you've, if you've, all of that evidence demands a verdict and you've shut your eyes to all of it and you say, no, I reject it, then to you only one verdict awaits. Remember I told you one sign given And that sign is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. One verdict awaits. There's a lot of talk right now about the afterlife. Uh, That uh, the guy from Jeopardy, Ken Jennings, I think he just wrote a book about the afterlife. Uh, The Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die and then face judgment. So we all know we're going to face judgment, and I'm sure there's a lot of speculation about what judgment day is going to be like. But whatever happens, uh, the Bible says that we are going to be physically raised. Everybody be physically raised, some to eternal life with Christ, some to eternal condemnation. There'll be judgment. Jesus says, whatever happens is speculation. But here's something we know is going to happen. Look at verse 41. Here's something that's going to happen on judgment day. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. So see, there'll be a day when everybody's raised up. So you got the the men 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 of Nineveh who died long ago. You got the Pharisees. And sure enough, you got... Um, folks who die now, all, all, all will be raised up and face that judgment. And the men of Nineveh is going to rise up and condemn this generation, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They repented at the, probably the, most, the lousiest sermon from the most faithless preacher there ever was, and they got saved. So they're going to, they're going to, they're going to condemn this generation and think how, how hard-hearted and foolish must you have been because behold, he says, something greater than Jonah is here on that day. Can you imagine? The Pharisees turn to face the judge. It's Jesus who's walked in their midst. It's Jesus who's shown them the very heart of God right in their face. Jesus is saying, I won't have to say a thing in that courtroom setting because the men of Nineveh will rise up and they'll say, are you kidding me? You mean to tell me you guys didn't recognize Jesus and get right with God when he was right there in your face? You had the You had the Old Testament scriptures. You had Jesus himself in your presence. We got an eight-word sermon from a disobedient prophet. Come on, guys. We didn't have Jesus. We didn't have the disciples. We didn't have thousands of years of Christian witness. How hard-hearted and foolish do you have to be? What is your excuse? Someone greater than Jonah is in your midst. These Gentiles, you imagine the Ninevites saying, we were Gentiles, and and we got saved from the preaching of disobedient, unfaithful Jonah, and y'all missed out on the one who's greater than Jonah. Take another example from the Gentiles. Do you remember in 1 Kings? Look at verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment. Who's the queen of the south? This is uh, referring to, remember 1 Kings, when um, this uh, queen who... uh, 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 just, I mean, very wealthy, very powerful, uh, hears about Solomon in Jerusalem, hundreds of miles away. Says the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. You can find the story in 1 Kings. She's hundreds of miles away, but when she got word that there was this God who had blessed this king, Uh, Way off in Jerusalem, she loads up all her caravan and her retinue and travels, as Jesus says, from the ends of the earth through wilderness up into the Holy Land. She's going up, up, up into Jerusalem. And finally she gets to the uh, city of Jerusalem and she goes up into 
where Solomon lived, and when she heard Solomon, the Bible says she was, she was blown away. Literally, she was, she was breathless at the wisdom of Solomon. She traveled all that distance to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And she's going to look and say, you had, you had someone greater than Solomon right there in your presence. She traveled hundreds of miles, and you wouldn't travel two miles to go hear the Sermon on the Mount? Now, this applies to all of us. Jesus applies it to the current generation. You see he does that in both those verses, but it's very easy to apply to us, isn't it? Can you imagine on Judgment Day what those Ninevites will say to modern Americans who reject Jesus? Can you imagine? Can you imagine what the Queen of the South would say to modern Americans who reject Jesus? They're going to say, let me see if I understand this correctly. You sat under the preaching of God's word. You got to hear, you didn't just get one chance to hear the gospel. You had multiple opportunities to hear the gospel and you, and you rejected him? One of my, uh, uh, I, I, I like watching the NFL commentators. There's this group of them. They have this really funny segment because ridiculous stuff happens every Sunday in the league. And so they have this segment on Monday night called, come on, man, come on, man. And they'll play some clip, and it's ridiculous, and it's like they do this really boneheaded thing, and the commentator will play the clip, and they always go, come on, man. This is what I hear. (laughs) Maybe it's irreligious, but this is what I hear. It's never stopped me before. In, uh, In verses 40 through 42, I hear the Ninevites and the Queen of the South going, come on, man. You mean to tell me you had all this access to the gospel? And you rejected him when all we had was an eight-word sermon? All I had was a rumor of a king far away? Come on, man. I imagine the queen of the south saying to modern Americans, I packed up everything and went 100 miles of journey and risked my life to get a shred of the wisdom from God. And you had access to all this and you, you missed Sunday school? Come on, man. I packed up and went across the desert to hear Solomon? You wouldn't get in your air-conditioned minivan, drive to church? Can't you hear? Come on, man. Well, one verdict awaits. By the way, if you're keeping score, earlier in this chapter, you'd have to go back to verse six, I think. Jesus said, one greater than the temple is here, which means he's calling himself greater than the priest. Then he just said, one greater than Jonah is here, so he's greater than the prophets. And now he said, one greater than Solomon is here, so he's greater than the kings. And we say that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Well, finally, and this can be for anyone who's still here, and if you've heard the messages in the last few weeks, one of the themes that Jesus is, I mean, this whole passage is about the opposition against Jesus, and one of the things he keeps coming back to is that people cannot remain on the fence. They can't remain neutral. A lot of people say, well, I don't want to be against Jesus. I don't want to be hostile to Jesus, but I'm not ready to make him Lord of everything. And so in this little experience observed, I don't know what else to call it. It's a parable, but let's talk about one sign given, one verdict awaits, and finally, one experience observed. That's the best way I know to put it. And this experience is of anyone who says, well, I want to remain neutral. I don't know. I want to, give me some more time. I want to think about, I don't want to be against Jesus, but I don't want to be for him. Uh, maybe you remember a few verses ago in this passage where Jesus says, Whoever is, uh, uh, whoever's not for me is against me. Because the one who, you either gather or you scatter. One makes the other impossible. And here it is. Neutrality is impossible. And he tells it in the form of a little parable. Look at verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, 
<laughs> Jesus doesn't unpack that for us at all. It's just like, yep, yeah, when that happens, you know, a person has a demon, uh, an unclean spirit, and then uh, is he forced out? Is he kicked out? Does he just go for a walk? Jesus, not the point of the parable, apparently. He leaves us hanging on that. But when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty. Uh, got it? Unoccupied. Swept. Put in order. Now, hey, that, that's better, right? I mean, that, it's good. You don't want an unclean spirit. You don't want a demon. And, and so your, your, your morals fall into line and your intellect falls into line. Unclean, swept, uh, uh, excuse me, unoccupied, swept, and put in order. It's empty. Well, then it goes, thinks, I'll go back there. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation. Now, what do we make of this? What's he talking about that? The best way to think about this is to think about the flow of the whole text. First, we have the question, what is the sign? The answer, it's the sign of Jonah, Jesus' death and resurrection. Then, how should we respond to the sign? And the answer is, be like the men of Nineveh and the woman from the south. Repent, come to Christ, unless you want to stand guilty before Christ on that judgment day. And in these verses, they're answering the question, well, what if I don't repent and believe? Can I just stay where I am? Can I just remain neutral? And here the Lord is saying, basically, religion won't save you from the final judgment. Outward reform won't cut it. Neutrality is not neutral. Either stay with this evil generation or come to Christ. Jesus is among this generation of the Pharisees. You can imagine the house being swept clean and put in order. Uh, you think about the time Jesus cleansed the temple. So at least for a day or a moment, whatever, as long as Jesus is in their midst, what's he doing? He's casting out these demons. It's like, okay, cool. So for right now, you've got a chance. The house is empty of evil. But now what? Now, now that the house is empty, is it gonna be filled with faith? Are you gonna let Jesus come in and live in there? If it's not gonna be filled with Christ, it's not gonna remain empty. That's the point of this parable. Jesus has come and done this great work among the Pharisees as long as he's there, Right? In some parable fashion, the demon has been expelled, so now it's empty. Now what? Can I remain neutral? No. If it's not filled, if that, if that emptiness, if that vacuum is not filled with Christ, oh, the demon will soon return and won't be alone, but will bring seven, the number of perfection. You might say a, a sort of a, a fullness of evil. And the last state will be worse than the first. And there's nothing worse than a Pharisee, an outwardly clean person, but inwardly filled with evil. I hope you can see how that applies to those Pharisees. They've benefited from the house cleaning, so to speak, but to not accept Jesus' rule, they're not neutral. They're gonna be worse off than before, wide open to evil. I wonder, is there an application here for our nation? To a generation who has experienced so much of the goodness of God, to a nation who's experienced so much of the goodness of God, and then to reject Christianity, to, to, you wonder, are we putting ourselves in a place that's gonna be seven times worse off than it was before. To have known the love of God, seen the love of God, and rejected it is not to remain neutral. It's to leave yourself open to a much worse state. So I wanna apply it to us. Neutral is not an option. One sign given, one verdict awaits, one experience observed. Neutrality is not an option. What will it be? We believe, put faith in the sign of Jonah. Well, if you're convicted as I am, and you might come to the end of a message like this and you say, well, where's the hope? 
Uh, to me, the hope is in that little line Jesus says, one greater than Jonah is here. This is our hope as Christians. If you think about it, there's really many ways in which Jesus is the true and better Jonah. Uh, you can just pick one. Jesus and Jonah were both in a boat, if you'll recall, and both boats were overtaken by a storm. The descriptions of the storm, by the way, when Jesus is with his disciples in the storm and Mark and the wording of Jonah in the storm with the sailors is almost identical. Both Jesus and Jonah were asleep in those stories, and in both stories, the sailors woke up the sleeper and said, we're gonna die. And in both cases, there was miraculous intervention and the sea was calm. And, and in both cases, the sailors then became even more terrified after the sea was calm than they were before. So two identical stories with just one difference. In the midst of the storm with Jonah, he says, if you throw me into the sea, it will be calm. You'll be saved if I'm thrown into the sea, which doesn't appear to happen in Jesus' story. But does it? Stay with me. If you stand back and you look at the whole gospel of Matthew, when he says one greater than Jonah is here, I wonder if he's thinking, I'm, I'm the true Jonah. In other words, someday I'm gonna calm all the storms. I'm gonna calm all the waves. I'm gonna destroy destruction. I'm gonna break brokenness. I'm gonna kill death. How can he do that? He can only do that because when he was on the cross, he was thrown willingly, like Jonah, into the ultimate storm, under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. He was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us, the storm of eternal justice of what we owe for our wrongdoing. And that storm wasn't calmed, as Tim Keller says, until it swept him away. If the sight of Jesus bowing his head into that ultimate storm is burned into the core of your being, you'll never again say, God, don't you care? If you know that he didn't abandon you in that ultimate storm, what would make you think he'll abandon you now? And of course, one day, he's gonna calm every storm. Go back to the very beginning when I asked, have you ever longed for a sign? I wanna tell you, he's given one, and it's enough. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. How do I know God's gonna get me through? Go back to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's how into the heart of the earth, risen out again. One sign is enough. It's not that God is being stingy with his signs. It's that the, this one sign really is powerful enough to get a man, woman, boy, or girl through anything. Name something you could go through that knowing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus wouldn't get you through. Oh, really. I say that because I know for a fact some of you are facing some really tough days, and they're scary. If you're longing for a sign, consider the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Consider that he died on the cross for you and your salvation. So what can harm you? Consider that he was laid in the grave according to the scripture, which means he fulfilled all the Old Testament. So which of his promises is he not going to keep? And consider on early Easter Sunday morning that he burst forth from the grave, meaning that even if whatever you're going through were to kill you, there will be life on the other side. That's the one sign needed. He's going to get you through. How do we know? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's incredible. If you think about it, the ordinances that he gave to the church, really, are they not just a restatement, both of them, of that one sign? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Think about it. He gave us the Lord's Supper. What do we remember when we take the Lord's Supper? This is my body. This is my blood given for you. We're remembering the cross. At baptism, what's the portrayal there of believer's baptism? 
the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are dead to the old nature of sin and risen to walk in newness of life. So really, even this ordinance, even this symbol, this taking of the Lord's Supper is really just an extrapolation on this one sign. Cling to it. It's the one sign given, the one sign needed. I'm going to say a prayer, and then I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward, and let's prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's table. Oh, Heavenly Father, grant as we receive this good gift from you, this symbol you've given your people, grant courage to those who desperately need a word. They need to know that you love them and help them to cling to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Baptism.